Hey friends, this is Chidima, also known as the Type A Hippie, and this is the Type A Hippie Podcast, SheCast episode 95. And I'm here with a colleague, actually, and her name is Dr. Lilia Cortina. She's, also, she's a full professor with tenure, which is a big deal, in two different departments, right? Psych and Women's Studies? Yes. Awesome. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. So I wanted to have us speak with or hear from Professor Cortina because she is an expert in the area of, she's done a significant amount of research in the area of gender harassment and with the, I guess, heightened awareness is probably a good way of putting it to the Me Too movement, which started in I think 1996 or no, excuse me, 2006 about with Tarana Burke. Um, she's an activist, an African-American woman that founded the Me Too movement and the resurgence has happened, I would say in the last year, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, with many people speaking out against some of the secrets uh, within Hollywood, within the political sphere and within higher education. And so I was like, I should... We should have some of, like, one of the best minds that's studying this um, tell us what the research shows and how it's not just that easy to walk away. And so, friends, anyone who listens to this podcast regularly knows that I have some pet peeves. Bootstraps is a pet peeve, like people pulling themselves up from the bootstraps. That's a pet peeve. Asking um, if a female survivor of sexual assault, asking about her apparel the day or the time of the attack asking um, about her state of mind, whether or not she had imbibed, um, asking any number of things, why a woman doesn't leave a domestic violence um, situation. In the case of um, a female survivor or any survivor really, but specifically there seems to be uh, some victim blaming and victim shaming. Those are all very bad questions. And so another one, that uh, Dr. Cortina and I talked about um, as we passed through the halls at work was this question of if a female faculty member, and we're definitely speaking in gendered language here, is being harassed um, as it relates to her gender, why doesn't she just leave? And so can you kind of start us off? Um, Actually, we'll put a pin in that. Introduce yourself. I said welcome really fast and then I didn't have you introduce yourself in your own words. Sure, sure. So my name is Lilia Cortina. Um, I have been on the faculty at the University of Michigan since the year 2000. Um, And since the mid-90s or so, I've been engaged or specialized in the scientific study of sexual harassment on the job. And by sexual harassment, I use that in its broadest sense, and it includes a variety of behaviors, some of which involve unwanted sexual pursuit, which is what people usually think of, but sexual harassment can also include gender harassment. And gender harassment is not a come on, it's a put down. It's, it's ways of disparaging people based on their sex or gender. Um, so instead of trying to pull people into a relationship, it's a way of pushing people away. Anyhow, I've been uh, studying the nature of this conduct and how people respond to it and how it relates to their health and well-being. Um, for almost 25 years now. That's huge. That's a long time. It is a long time. And it's still there. It's still a problem. 
uh, sexual harassment has sort of, you know, it, it burned brightly as a, as a big scandal in the early and mid 90s. And then it kind of faded away in terms of um, uh, what was making the headlines, but the problem didn't go anywhere. It's recently uh, shown up in the headlines again, but it's still the same problem that, that it has been. It's not, not that we fixed anything. For some reason, people stopped, or the media or someone stopped paying attention for a while there. But now people are paying attention again and realizing that it really is still a, um, a real problem in a lot of um, workspaces. Absolutely. So thank you. And that leads me back to the question about why it's not a simple solution for the person that's being harassed to just leave. Mm -hmm. So there are all kinds of negative career consequences for just walking away. Um, these were the questions that came up when Anita Hill first came forward in the early 90s. Um, senators and members of the public could not understand why Anita Hill had continued working uh, with Clarence Thomas, had even, I think, followed Clarence Thomas to another agency, and they didn't get the, the real costs she would have incurred if she just walked away. Um, there are a lot of women out there who um, desperately need their jobs for income, for employment, for uh, quality of life. You know, there are many reasons why one might not want to just up and quit. Um, and there's the career issues. There's also the, the simple fact of making a living and supporting a family. Um, so people in, uh, um, in general tend to think that if they were harassed, they would certainly walk away or they'd confront the guy or they'd report the guy or take some other sort of assertive, very bold action. Um, and we know from a variety of studies that what people imagine they would do in the hypothetical bears very little resemblance to what people actually do when harassed. Absolutely. And so you mentioned some of the implications from a financial standpoint. Can we talk about some of the emotional or mental health um, complications with harassment? Mm -hmm. So a lot of studies now have documented um, a variety of negative mental health consequences that women suffer when sexually harassed. Men, men too as well, um, I should add. When men are sexually harassed at the same rate as women, their, their consequences look very similar. So people report increases in depressive symptoms, symptoms of anxiety, sometimes even symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, their physical health sometimes takes a hit, perhaps as a, as a function or related to the mental health problems. Um, so there's a variety of ways in which sexual harassment can be corrosive to work and well-being for the people who are targeted with it. Sure. And what are examples? So you delineated when we first started uh, speaking between put-downs and the kind of unwanted pursuit that mm -hmm. come on. Mm -hmm. Can you go a little bit deeper into that and kind of what research has led us to believe about those mm -hmm. two? Sure. Um, so the, the most consistent conclusion that's emerged across a variety of studies is that uh, more often than not, sexual harassment is a put-down, not a come-on. And by put-down, I'm referring to gender harassment. So that could be take the form of name-calling, um, gender-related insults, 
um, gender insulting comments about uh, women scrawled on the walls or in whiteboards or coworkers sharing offensive comments on social media, um, offensive texting or offensive emailing that are essentially insulting people in gender related ways or insulting people for being women or for being men or not living up to the ideals, traditional gender ideals. So not being man enough, for example, in a man's, in a man's experience. So that's gender harassment. Unwanted sexual attention and sexual coercion would fall more into the come on bucket. Um, unwanted sexual attention is exactly what it sounds like. Unwanted touching, hugging, stroking, repeated requests for dates or sexual behavior despite discouragement. And then sexual coercion is a more specific form of unwanted sexual attention that is paired with professional bribes or professional threats to force compliance. So that would be the prototypical sleep with me or you're fired situation. Um, it's often the first example that comes to people's minds when you say sexual harassment, but we know from research that it's actually the rarest form that sexual harassment takes. And it seems like some of the the rare forms are very blatant and very obvious, but some of the others might be more insidious and more covert. Is that accurate? Yep. And so does that then take its toll because it takes longer for the person that's being harassed to maybe complain about it or bring it up? Or is there no correlation to that? Well, we certainly know also from research that people are much less likely to realize they're being sexually harassed if the behavior is a put down, not a come on. Um, they might realize that it's inappropriate and offensive, but if they don't even call it sexual harassment, then they don't think about um, sexual harassment reporting mechanisms as a way to deal with the problem. Sure. Um, so it's definitely an issue. That makes sense. Uh, I was thinking about when you were talking if there are certain industries or departments or areas whether within uh, higher education or academia or without, where people tend to get more. So is this happening more in certain fields like law or STEM mm -hmm. fields or non-STEM fields or in STEM for anyone who's not um, aware, STEM means science, technology, engineering, and math. And those are loose, as with anything, <laughs> there's sometimes things that go in STEM based on institution and areas or departments, units that are not a part of STEM that may be considered somewhere else. So for example, a male nurse or a male in a nursing program or a nursing school somewhere in the US, would we find more, does the research indicate that that is happening more where someone may be one, like one member of the gender that and overwhelmingly, it's another gender that's represented. Mm -hmm. So originally, theorists um, did suspect that there was something about the gender composition of the context, which is what you're getting at. Sure. That if it's a highly male-skewed, male-dominated context, there would be more sexual harassment of women, partly because the women in that setting stand out more, they're more visible, and they get stereotyped more as women, and all of that can fuel mistreatment of them as women. 
people suspect, and then the, the, that those predictions did bear out to be okay. true in, in empirical studies. People suspected or, that the same would be true of female skewed or female dominated contexts, like nursing would be a great example. So men in nursing would also face more sexual harassment, according to the theory. But that actually has not proven to be true. Interesting. Uh, the, the common denominator um, that I've noticed across a number of studies that have looked at different industries and different roles within large organizations has been uh, the male domination of the context. So in other words, is, is it a context that is numerically dominated by men, so men far outnumber women, and socially dominated, such that men are in leadership roles, men are in positions of power. That seems to be the most common predictor of sexual harassment of women and of men. So women face far more sexual harassment when they work with mostly men, and men face far more sexual harassment when they work with mostly men. Um, and that's not to say that all sexual harassment is perpetrated by men, sure. but there is something about the, the more masculine context. So you could think of the fields that are more male-dominated, and that's where you tend to see higher rates. Another factor that I'll add that my lab is starting to document, that I've been arguing this for years and we're starting to show it empirically, is that contexts that have high rates of generally uncivil, kind of nasty, rude behavior or disrespectful behavior also tend to have higher rates of harassment based on sex, gender, race, sexual orientation. So a, a, a backdrop of general incivility and disrespect seems to set the stage for more um, uh, identity-specific forms of disrespect, like sexual harassment, racial sure. harassment, and so on. Yeah, I was actually going to ask about that, looking at intersectionality. And so if mm -hmm. you're unaware of what that means, it simply um, is kind of how our multiple identities not so much compete, but kind of come together in a holistic manner and that we can't really talk about one thing without also introducing or talking about um, and including some of the others. And so you just talked about race and sexual orientation. Uh, I would add different abilities. Some people call it disabilities. I don't love that term. Uh, religion, faith. And so what, if any, research is available? And is that something that you look at also? Uh, is that being added to the mix as far as if someone is, say, for example, I said, I identify as a Nigerian American woman or a black woman. And so if I'm in an uh, industry that is predominantly not only male but predominantly white male I may have an experience that maybe even a white female in that same context may not experience and so what mm -hmm. what's happening or what's being studied mm -hmm. in terms of that that's a great question um, what research would predict is that uh, as a black woman, you would for face a sort of double whammy of discrimination or prejudice that you might be disrespected based on being a woman, based on being Nigerian American. The, the net result of that would be more harassment based on sex and gender and more racial harassment. And when you combine those two, then at the end of the day, what you get is more harassment in general. Sure. Um, and my group, we've done some work on 
sexual harassment of Latina women on the West Coast and um, didn't necessarily find that Latinas are reporting more sexual harassment than their non-Latina white uh, colleagues. But when you add on racial harassment, I mean, sure. that just compounds the, the stress and the anxiety of the situation. Um, we've also done some work looking at LGBT experiences of gender harassment, uh, unwanted sexual attention, and sexual orientation-based harassment. And that's fascinating. We can tease apart those things in our research studies, but uh, when it comes to the day-to-day -day work lives of LGBT employees, it's very difficult to disentangle whether sure. the mistreatment is because they're, uh, because they're gay, because they're not man enough, because they're a gay man. I mean, disentangling sure. those things gets very, very tricky. For example, when they're insulted for being um, not man enough, for being a sissy, those kind of sure. um, male-related masculine name-calling. Sure. Yeah, I was listening to another podcast and it was two women who were in a uh, romantic relationship and they were talking about how sometimes they'll be at the bar and when a man realizes, a straight man realizes that they are in a relationship together, he's asking them to do things or perform, um, I don't want to say sexual acts, but sort of like kiss one another, you know, when he would never dream of saying that to a heterosexual couple. Mm -hmm. Never, right? right? Because that's not what we do. We know that that's inappropriate right. to, for me to go up to someone, even if they're married and say, kiss. Would you, you kiss know? Them would yeah. you kiss? Exactly. It is weird, right? And so why wouldn't he consider it to be weird mm -hmm. with two women, you know? Mm -hmm. And so stuff like that, I would imagine, can probably come up in certain um, scenarios where, especially if, if it's a social scenario, and it doesn't even have to be a social scenario, but I would imagine some people feel more comfortable being inappropriate in social, even professional social settings, um, where sometimes alcohol is involved or mm -hmm. other things. Um, Certainly. So, yeah. So one of the things that I was thinking about also was... Um, so there was in the headlines probably maybe around sometime last year with this new administration. And so one of the members had said that he won't um, be in a meeting mm -hmm. alone with the, he identifies as a straight male. He would not be in a meeting alone with anyone that is not a female that is not his wife. And I had heard that in academia before too, where mm -hmm. professors out of fear, which I don't think is necessarily justified fear to be honest, um, because I don't really think that people are overwhelmingly just accusing people of things that actually haven't been done. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say, I mean, I'm sure it's happened. So if you're upset by that statement, I, I know that it's happened because where there are humans, there are lies periodically, but I don't think it's an overwhelming fear that is necessarily justified. And so I've heard um, in circles in higher ed that male professors have not wanted to engage or be in a professional relationship with female grad students. And, uh, and then I've heard kind of the retort that you lose some of the professional relationship, some of the richness of conversation, um, mm -hmm. if you were to choose to leave your door open and other graduate students are waiting for office hours, right? Mm -hmm. What would you say to that? And um, can you 
elaborate on some of the problems with setting yourself up like that. I won't meet with someone of a different gender Mm -hmm. with a closed door and the implications that can have both on the professor and the graduate student. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. So first I would say that your um, suspicion is spot on that people don't uh, make accusations right and left about sexual harassment. Actually, official or formal reporting of sexual harassment is quite rare. Even when women or men and men are sexually harassed, they typically do not report it to anyone in authority. So the idea that, you know, if you look at a woman wrong, she'll cry sexual harassment is a total myth. Um, the second thing I would add is that I share your uh, concern that about this alarming trend of people I hear this among my uh, colleagues here in academia, but I've also heard it in other industries, uh, saying things like, well, I shouldn't meet with uh, this young woman alone because it might, uh, she might get the wrong impression or the optics are bad or that sort of thing. The, there's several problems with that. One is if you, is, so essentially you're, cutting off, potentially cutting off that young woman from important mentoring and perhaps important information sharing. So we know that to get ahead in many industries, it requires uh, one-on-one mentoring, it requires advocacy, it requires um, meetings that are often taking place in private because that's where a lot of the more intensive mentoring happens. So if you're cutting off young women from those sort of mentoring meetings or mentoring opportunities, uh, first of all, you're potentially um, uh, not being very helpful in terms of their career, but second of all, you're breaking the law. If you're not meeting with or refusing to meet with young women alone in private, that is, but you're meeting with young men and you're mentoring young men and you have male protégés that you're helping move up the ranks, then that's simple sex discrimination when it happens in employment. Um, So at the end of the day, it could be a legal violation. Now, it could be that you're just not comfortable um, closing the door and having a private meeting with a woman or a person of another gender. If you're not comfortable or you're concerned that they're not comfortable, that's fine. You don't have to meet with them, but that means that you can't meet with the young men either, that you have to treat people equitably uh, across the different sex categories. Agreed. Yeah, it's it's so interesting to me that people don't see that. And to be fair, maybe they're just not aware and they hadn't thought it all the way through of the implications. Because I know that in my youth, for example, some of the choices I made, right, mm-hmm. and probably you, <laughs> yep. are not ones that I would choose to repeat. Mm-hmm. Now that I know a little bit more information, but. Um, if we really look deep and realize the connection that we all have, and that's one of the things that I, I think the biggest lesson for me while I was in Uganda was just how connected we really are. And so the point is that I may not be friends with everyone, right? Everyone may not be in my inner circle and that's fine. But if I remember that I'm connected to everyone or I have a responsibility to be connected, then it may change the way that I look at things. I once was employed by a company and I asked about mentoring Mm -hmm. and they said that they didn't do mentoring. And I said, okay, what is this then? 
you know, and they were taking out someone who they were essentially grooming for a role and they would take them out. I mean, the higher levels, like the C-suite, they were taking out this, Mm. I say young kid, but early 20s, um, young man, and they weren't willing to do, they weren't doing that with Uh, everyone, right? And so I noticed that, and it's hard to say, you know, whether you're a graduate student, whether you are newer in, um, to working, Mm -hmm. why that was, is that because I'm not a young man, which Mm -hmm. I would, I'm not a young man and I'm not going to become a young man. Um, is it because of the color of my skin? Is it because my gender? Is it because I speak up? Mm -hmm. Um, who knows? And that's the, I think for me, just as someone who is not an advocate, but just as a human, that's the insidiousness. And then also as an activist and an advocate of discrimination, of harassment, of any of the isms, um, is you can't cut piece and parcel of, mm-hmm. you know, why am I being mistreated? Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. I mean, absolutely. That's, all of that is true. I mean, part of this I chalk up to the fact that we, we know from psychology that people are most comfortable and at ease with other people who are like them, who have a similar upbringing, similar class background, similar ethnic background. Um, there's just, it's, the relationships are easier to negotiate. Um, so that would be everyone's default tendency unless you're aware of it and you kind of actively take steps to kind of counteract that to make sure you aren't in a, in a unintentionally discriminating against people based on their class or their race background, so on and so forth. And, and I think it's important that we do give some thought to that because exactly what you noticed, work does happen outside the workplace. And we need to be aware of that because a lot of professional development happens outside the workplace in these informal settings, whether it's a bar or uh, a gym, the tennis courts, the golf course. I mean, there's a various, various settings beyond the walls of the nine to five workplace where people get a lot of mentoring and grooming, as you point out, um, and a lot of professional development. Um, I would just add that it's also a place where we're starting to realize that a lot of the sexual harassment is happening, that it might not be uh, on site between the hours of nine to five, but it's at the conference that everyone goes to. It's at the happy hour that all the employees go to outside of work. It's these different settings where people don't think of themselves perhaps as working per se and or they're drinking, or the combination of things, for whatever reason, they start to behave in ways. It wouldn't necessarily behave um, when they're at work, but that's absolutely a form of um, sexual harassment in employment if, if, if you think of the work extending beyond the traditional um, walls of the workplace. Yeah, and one thing I would add is access to information. Right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and we know at least in this country and in many other countries across the globe, that when you have access to information, you have a little bit more power, you have mm-hmm. a little bit more cachet. And so mm-hmm. um, that is also what's happening. And I think too, your point about Seth, um, 
social events happening that are work social events Mm -hmm. happening in bars in particular if for whatever reason someone doesn't drink they may not feel comfortable so Mm -hmm. that's an um, exclusion Uh, and then the person that is being harassed may feel like they've brought it on themselves somehow because they also were um, Mm -hmm. participating in drinking which isn't the case you know that is that goes back to kind of how we started this podcast about bad questions to ask Mm -hmm. um, or inappropriate Mm -hmm. questions. And so um, if you are experiencing this in in your workplace, I would suggest and we'll um, get your take on it. um, Speaking with someone, maybe not someone officially yet, but Mm -hmm. kind of processing with someone to see what you want to do. Because a lot of times, once you put it out there, and this is not to deter you. This is only to encourage you and to, for you to feel empowered to do what you feel is best for you. Because I tell people, I'm not in your wallet. I'm not in your budget. I don't know what you can afford to do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's definitely easier to get a new job when you have a job, but it may not happen very quickly and mm-hmm. you might have to still be in that situation. And so I would hope that you are protected and I want you to get all the information you um, you need so that you can make an appropriate choice for you that allows you to feel empowered. Um, many workplaces do have a formal reporting system mm-hmm. in place. Um, many workplaces have a formal HR. Again, sometimes HR isn't necessarily there for the team members. Right. Um, right. You know, sometimes the legal department isn't there for the team members. It's there for protection for the the university, the institution mm-hmm. that, you know. Yep. And, and, and I don't love that, but I say this just so that you can go in with your eyes wide open. Um, if you are part of the University of Michigan system, um, I think Michigan Medicine has their own um, because they're considered a separate campus than Central Campus, which is separate from Dearborn and Flint. Um, There are systems in place, there's counseling um, options as well. So definitely look at what options. If you have any questions, please email me directly um, and I can help you navigate. But is there anything else that I'm missing in terms of if this is happening for someone? Yeah, no, I completely agree with you that uh, reaching out for support is, is absolutely critical, um, to figure out what your options are, to get advice on, uh, about how to proceed, um, and also just to feel emotionally supported. I mean, it can be extremely isolating. Uh, people often carry around a lot of shame and they wonder what they might have done to bring on the, the horrible treatment. So reaching out to someone that you trust and that could give you feedback and say, hey, no, it wasn't you. This is the, the situation, not, not you. I would also emphasize to think about whom you can reach out to confidentially yes. because the official reporting channels can't, uh, they typically cannot guarantee any kind of anonymity. Once you make a report to the institution, then the institution is put on notice and they're legally obligated to investigate and to take some kind of corrective measures. So you think you, you might think that they aren't going to release your name or details, but they typically will not guarantee confidentiality because if they need to act on something and if they need to say, we know that, or we have a report that X, Y, and Z happened, that might reveal to whoever they're talking to who has come forward. 
Um, so ask, ask information, ask questions. You can ask questions even when you reach out to a formal reporting system. You can ask questions about what will happen next. Should I decide to report? Tell me more about who's, who would handle it, who will I be talking to, who will they be talking to. You can ask all the questions you want and then decide whether and how to proceed with reporting. Um, I would also encourage people who've, who are going through some kind of situation at work where it may count as some form of uh, impermissible harassment to record everything that's happening. And what I mean by that is every inappropriate email or post on social media, note left on your desk, uh, save all of it, take pictures of anything, uh, something inappropriate written on the whiteboard, whatever it is, gestures, try and um, create records, take notes right after the meetings, if there's inappropriate meetings or comments said in the meetings. And then finally, I would just encourage people to reject the myths because there are so many myths and misconceptions out there about sexual harassment. Myths like, uh, women enjoy this kind of behavior. Uh, it's usually something she did. It's usually something she wore. Um, or it's just um, friendly banter. Or um, it's just flirting. You know, when, when someone finds it unwelcomed, unpleasant, it's unreciprocated. Um, it's not just flirting. It's not romance. It's sexual harassment. That's right. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me about this. My pleasure. It's definitely a meaty topic, and so we might have you come back on <laughs> another time. She's so humble. She was like, just make sure you listen to the recording beforehand <laughs> to make sure you actually want me to come back. I'm like, oh, my goodness. I've listened to, like, a couple of your talks, and um, they've been so good. I mean, I wish that – you didn't even have to report this because people treated each other with respect. Mm -hmm. um, but since that's not where we are as a society quite yet, I'm glad that someone's taking a look at it. Someday. And that it's, Maybe yeah, we'll that's it. right. Um, and then you have um, a claim to fame. Which one? Wayne State. <laughs> oh, I was on a panel um, a couple months ago with Gloria Steinem. Or I should say there was an event with Gloria Steinem as the, the, the main uh, uh, speaker of the day. And I was sort of like one of the um, groupies that come, made little comments <laughs> on the side. That was great fun. Yeah, that was so cool to watch it. Um, awesome. All right, friends. So thank you all for the support for this podcast and for listening. I look forward to your emails and your uh, comments and concerns. I found, so if you want to um, contribute financially to the podcast, patreon.com forward slash the type A hippie. Now a story from Humans of New York. It appears to be a woman with a walking stick as if she has um, maybe an experience with visual impairment. Um, and it says, when I'm home, nobody will talk to me. It's like I'm dead. I don't like quiet because then I have nothing. So I ride the train into the city. Compared to home, the city is like heaven. There are a million people who can ask for help. There are people to help you up the stairs, and there are so many smells. I love the smell of food. Right now, I'm trying to memorize my way to Carnegie, Carnegie Hall. I like to go to theaters and museums where my mind can be nourished. Sometimes I can hear tourists talking about the exhibit. Sometimes I hear college students talking to each other, and it makes me feel younger. 
It makes me feel like I'm still alive in this world. And the reason I picked this particular story was that um, something you said, Dr. Cortina, about how reporting can be very isolating. Mm -hmm. And if you've made a report, not again to deter you, we, we support you doing what's best for you. But if you make a report, that could be the case where no one speaks to you and it feels like you're dead or you're not present um, and you have nothing. And so it's always a reminder. These stories are a reminder to us of like how we interact with other people, you know, and um, if we're focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion, inclusion is part of that. And so ensuring that everyone knows that they have a right to be where they are um, and they are part of the global community, it's really important. Absolutely. All right, friends. I honor the place within you where the entire universe resides. I honor the place within you of love, of light, of truth, of peace. I honor the place within you where when you are in that place in you and I'm in that place in me, there's only one of us. So have a gratitude-filled rest of your day. Until next time, my name is Chidima, also known as the Type A Hippie, and this is the Type A Hippie Podcast. She cast episode 95. Thanks so much. Namaste.